Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Backpacking Podcast. As always, I'm here with my good friend, Jeremiah Stringer. Jeremiah, how are you doing tonight, buddy? I am doing fantastic. I am excited. Another great live stream tonight. Monday night, something to look forward to on Mondays. I know. Now the football's over, and Tom Brady now has a seventh Super Bowl. You realize Tom Brady has more Super Bowls than any team in the NFL? I know, and I was rooting for the Bucks, man, because Mr. Backpacking with Jason, sir, is a Tom Brady fan. Yeah, we got to gotta cheer for him. We got we to gotta pick up for Mr. Backpacking with Jason, sir, which he better be on here tonight or I'm taking it back later. Uh, so, so we got a really cool sponsor for tonight. I want to go ahead and kick in with the sponsor because we have a cool sponsor tonight, a great guy that, that we both are big fans of. Yeah, and, and actually like straight up friends with, get to go backpacking with. I just had a trip with him <laughs> over the weekend. Yeah, that's our good buddy Ben over at Hilltop Packs. We've always been friends with Ben. I've known Ben now for a couple of years, and he's got some killer gear. One of the things that, that I love about Ben's products is he's known for printing on Dyneema, which is something nobody else is doing right now, at least not the way he's doing it. And like I've got a couple things here. I got this awesome just Dyneema like electronics ditty bag that's got two pockets in it one where you can put your battery one where you can put all your cables and everything and it's got my little girl ellie here my little boy jack so i can always take them out on the back country with me love that also they're making these new fanny packs that weigh like literally nothing they they float because they weigh so little and uh i love them. the roll top fanny packs they can hold as little as as two liters or as many as four and a half five liters worth of stuff so he's making killer gear yeah, he actually has made me some stuff too. It, so here's the thing with Hilltop Packs. It's all about customization. So all about what, it. this is a food bag. Uh, I have another one over here beside me that is even larger. So you can get whatever size you want. And the grid that you see on there is actually my Instagram feed and then the logo for my channel. Or you can go with something a little smaller, like a, a bear bag. This is, uh, you know, the rock. The, you put your rocks in here throw it over a tree comes with some zingot and a carabiner so if you want to hang your food or if you like to do videography like i do i mean he prints all kinds of stuff man but this is basically a little bag that you can put your batteries in it's green on one side red on the other and then a divider in between and it pretty much solves the issue of knowing which batteries are dead um, if you like to take pictures your camera or anything like that out into the back country well, and I'll be honest, I, I will take credit for that little tiny rock sack that you had there because when he first came <laughs> yeah. out with rock sacks, when he did the very first bear bags, I actually did a review and I got one of those one of his original rock sacks, which was big as your hand and it had writing and stuff on it. And I remember doing a review and saying, you know, the, the rock sack's okay, but it's so hard. It's almost hard to throw, you know? Yeah. A week later. He does a video about the sexiest rock sack you've ever seen. And it's this brand new rock sack he made. And uh, it, I'm just taking full credit for it. I'm well, just saying I am. He puts those videos on his YouTube channel, Hilltop Packs. So he, he actually just made uh, this last thing I'll say. I, I really do love Ben. He's a great guy. Um, but last thing I'll say is 
he just uploaded this video where he drove all the way to Kentucky and delivered backpacking with Jason's backpack. So he makes backpacks too, and he can print on Dyneema for those too. So thank you, Ben and Hilltop Packs yeah. for sponsoring today's episode. And, and thank you for t- giving back to the community as well. I know they're big into Leave No Trace and to uh, giving part of what they make as a company back to uh, public lands. So thanks, Ben, for all you're doing. You're the man. We appreciate you, buddy. Yeah. So let's get on to what everybody's here for now. Uh, we have a special guest tonight. <laughs> Legendary, bro. I don't even know how to describe him. I would say um, he's the only person I know of to hike 7,000 miles and then go hike 5,000 after it. Like <laughs> nobody does this kind of stuff. Um, everybody knows him for eating beans, rice, and Fritos. And somebody posted something about beaver water, which we're going to have to ask about in a little bit. But I want to welcome to the podcast for the first time ever, uh, Mr. Andrew Skirka. How are you, sir? <laughs> Doing great. You guys are just cracking me up sitting here. <laughs> just the, the energy level is so good. And I'm, I'm reading all the comments coming through. Your audience is pretty funny, too. Oh yeah, they, looks, it, it's looks like you guys people. have a nice little community here. Yeah, we yeah, love we to have do. fun, man. I want to mention a couple of things about you uh, as we're getting started here to give everybody some context. So you're 38, living in Colorado, I'll, but I'll, it'd be 40 next month. Oh, living in Colorado. Oh, yeah. welcome to the club. I um, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't think I was going to have two COVID birthdays, but it's looking that way. <laughs> Well, the the crazy things, and and I've been reading up on your website, which is andrewskirka.com, if other people want to check it out. So you did the Alaska-Yukon expedition, which took six months and was 4,700 miles, and the Great Western Loop, seven months and almost 6,900 miles, and then the sea-to-sea route, 11 months, uh, 7,800 miles. I was reading the average miles per day. I don't even know how the human body can do that. Well, and and did you do you did almost like fifteen hundred miles of snowshoeing on that, right? On the sea to sea trip, yeah, I think it was yeah um, was it, yeah like thirteen hundred miles of snowshoeing, twelve hundred miles of snowshoeing. It was a lot. It was like half Gosh. the length of the Appalachian Trail on snowshoes. Yeah, that's definitely not as quick as your normal hiking, is it? And then the um, the Alaska trip had the Alaska trip had. I'm just trying to remember, like twelve hundred miles of skiing on that one. So, um, so the big expeditions have usually been kind of multi-sport well which one i know this is probably a hard question to answer but if you could do it all over again um and you could pick one and it's your favorite i know they're all different experiences but which would it be and why yeah yeah so it's kind of like asking like what child is your favorite um and you, have, <laughs> yeah. and you have to understand um i mean i think for at the time they all worked for me they they were like perfect for where i was at that point in my life and where i was at that point with in my sort of like backpacking career if you will so the c to c route i was i started when i was 24 years old or maybe even 23 um and it was like in hindsight it was like young man goes and sees his country like that's that's what that trip was all about and there was like quite a few sort of wilderness experiences sort of um added in there but i think like looking back at it now, it was a lot more cultural than I expected. Um, and um, there are a lot more human interactions that, that that sort of define the trip. And then the Great Western Loop was, I was 27 and that was my um, 
like the pinnacle physical achievement as a backpacker, like how, how fast, how far, um, how light could I go? And that was kind of what that was all about. And then the Alaska trip was mega, like long distance, epic adventure. Um, and that's like kind of an expert skill set. And those other trips that I'd done previously, like they were what sort of, they were the stepping stones to something like Alaska. It's just Crazy. insane. You mentioned yeah. like just pushing yourself to your limits and seeing how light and seeing how fast you can go. How light was light? <laughs> it was light. I mean, this is, and this is like pre, pre dynamic composite fabric too. So uh, I think my, pa- my base pack weight on the great Western loop is probably eight ish pounds. Mm. Wow. Um, so, and it also was kind of pre electronics as well. So, those those two weight pieces might sort of counterbalance each other, so there wasn't like I don't think spot spot hadn't even come out at that point, and um, like you're I don't I didn't have a phone, <laughs> so like there what wasn't that it, it was I know it was 2007 it wasn't that long oh, ago that but, was the first year of the iPhone. That was the first year of the right. iPhones. They probably weren't even out when you were doing that. Yeah, right? and yeah. I remember seeing an iPhone for the first time. I, I think maybe it was that Christmas um, when I got back. My um, my brother in law's uh, my brother in law's brother in law had one, and um, but never. I mean, like I never put it together. Like, oh, one day this is going to be a critical piece of backpacking equipment. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So that so base weight on that trip was eight ish pounds, and um, I averaged uh, thirty three miles a day for two hundred eight days. Um, I took only seven days off. Man, that's crazy. And like I, I've never done it, but I should go back and like figure out where I camped and like figure out kind of how much vertical I was doing per day. Cause like, I, I just remember like getting into the San Juans in Colorado and just like still rocking out like 35 mile days. And if you're doing, if you're on the console divide trail in Colorado and you're rocking out 35 miles a day, I mean, you're probably doing 10,000 vert a day. And I was going, I was sleeping on a foam pad and getting up in the morning and doing it again. <laughs> it's like crazy. Okay. So this this is crazy. So, so my question is for you, what, what was it when you first did that first trail that made you go, it'd be a really good idea to just like go hike thousands and thousands of miles and, and basically do more than a marathon every single day of the week. Well, you know, I built up, built up to it gradually. So like when I started the Appalachian trail, like I was disillusioned when I did the Appalachian trail, I was thinking it was going to be like this, you know, this, uh, immersive experience in nature. And I was going to be like the next John Muir trail or next John Muir coming out. Like one, by the time I hit Katahdin and I got out there and I was like, Oh, this is hard. <laughs> this, is, this is really hard. Yeah. Uh, I was carrying too much. I didn't have, I just didn't have, and I didn't have any basic skills. I didn't know how to like, I didn't know how to purify my water. I didn't know how to like, like select a good campsite. I didn't know how to like, I didn't know how to navigate. Like I would get to the road and like left meant West and right meant East. That's like all I knew. And um, so it was hard and, but I was drawn to that too. Like I'm an endurance athlete, you know, by background. So I've been running competitively since I've been 14 years old. And I enjoy that physical aspect of it. Um, And I don't, Real, I don't like to quit either. So I kind of, you know, pushed through that, got it done, um, started to enjoy it, especially towards the end, once I kind of like figured things out. 
Um, and then that C to C trip, um, uh, yeah, that was, I think I ended up averaging, yeah, like a marathon a day, maybe a little bit less than that for 300 days. Um, uh, that trip was, um, I'd say my pace was a little bit more dictated by the conditions and also just, uh, it's kind of what, what I was like naturally doing anyway. Um, it turns out that if you're, if you're like walking across Eastern Montana, if you walk for 10 hours, you probably are going to cover 30 miles. So wow. like, I don't care how fit you are. Let's, yeah. let's take it all the way back to the, the origin story here. So my, yeah. my very first backpacking trip, I fell in love with it because my father-in-law asked me to go and I borrowed all this gear and he took me on like 40 to 50 miles through the Smokies on the AT. What, where did you fall in love with backpacking or did you always grow up doing it? <laughs> I didn't. I, I, I grew up like day hiking and mountain biking and, um, like building trails like around the swamps in my backyard. We didn't, I, I grew up in a family who was um, like, we would go on family vacations up to New Hampshire, Maine, Vermont, more because it was cheap and it was reasonably accessible from Southeastern Mass. But we didn't, I didn't grow up a lot, around a lot of nature. And um, I don't, I'm trying to think of like where I really fell in love with backpacking. Um, boy, I don't even think it was on the Appalachian Trail. Now that I think about it, like I, I think that there, were, I think it was that trip was so hard on me, um, just physically hard, emotionally hard. That um, I probably fell in love more with it during the C to C trip, where I was really in beautiful country, and the mechanics of backpacking were easy; they were second nature. So I was just really able to kind of enjoy myself. Yeah. That's awesome. But it took a while. I kind of I knew that there was potential there. I kind of kept on forcing it almost until I fell in love with it. I think. I remember the very first backpacking trip I ever did. I was in um, so I was a, I was in college and um, I flew out to um to San Francisco where my sister was in college. She was in grad grad school, and I borrowed her um her Buick Century, and uh, I had bought some backpacking gear and I went out to Yosemite and this is in the middle of March. And like did a couple of overnights in Yosemite. And I just remember like, I remember freezing my tail off, like you know, basically <laughs> every night I remember my, my water bottle froze. Like it was just, I remember like having like, you know, four pots for like a dinner, <laughs> like just crazy <laughs> amounts of stuff. Just <laughs> Well, we have a, we have a good comment on here. You need to see, uh, this is backcountry exposure. This is Devin Ashby. He teaches oh, um, backpacking. Yeah. He says, I want Andrew to know that I use his photo of the dead cow in Harris, Washington as an example of you never know what's in your water with his backpacking scene. Yeah. Yeah. Harris Wash. There's um so this is in it's Harris Wash is a tributary of the Escalante River in southern Utah. And uh I was let's see, this was two thousand and nine and I was doing like most of the Hay Duke Trail and then some stuff in the Grand Canyon as part of like a like a eight week long trip. And I was down at the Escalante and I fill up my water bottle there at the river and then i started hiking up harris wash and i came up on this dead cow it was like just and it'd been there a while because like i just remember like these pieces of skin were sort of like like rippling in the water like down with the current (laughs) and i don't know if it had gotten stuck in the sand or if it had just died out there but yeah it was just in the middle of the creek so thankfully i hadn't taken any of that water or drank any of that water so i quickly dumped that out and filled up a little further upstream 
Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we just we just had some friends that went backpacking up in uh, the Boundary Waters this past week, and they hit negative twenty seven degrees <laughs> in their hiking. And yeah. uh, somebody wanted to ask the question: What was the coldest temps you have been exposed to on the trip? About that same thing. Yeah, twenty five below, thirty below, and that, that is that's cold. Uh, um, so <laughs> I think like the way to think about the way to think about cold temperatures is like for most people, like the idea of twenty below zero is just it's this abstraction because they've never experienced anything remotely close, but figure that 20 below zero is 40 degrees colder than freezing. So go in the opposite direction. Think about like if it's 72 degrees, think about the comfort difference between 72 and 32 and then flip it the other way. And it's that same difference in like how things operate at those temperatures. Yeah. Like nothing at those temperatures, like nothing works. So like the, um, like the rubber bindings on your, on your snowshoes, they get really brittle. Um, you're the, the rubber gasket for like a whisper light stove, um, is prone to freezing and cracking and then your stove doesn't work. Um, the snow is, uh, the snow, um, the snow state like on a crystal level, like a microscopic crystal level, it stays really sharp. So your skis don't glide very well in in snow that's that cold. Yeah, it's pretty wild conditions. Wow. And that's you just can't incredible. Yeah, I guess the other thing I'd say, like you can't let anything um you can't let anything get away from you because the margin of error is really thin. So for example, if you uh if your hands get cold so um either you're not paying attention to them or you have to like take off your mitts to like maybe tie a shoe or something like that it's it's hard to get your get your hands back warm maybe and then if your hand if you can't get your hands warm then you're not able to like zip up the jacket or you're not able to start a stove or you're not able to set up your tent so it, things have these cascading effects in the temperatures that cold i used to watch the show on history channel called mountain man have you heard of it no well, it basically follows different like mountain men, if you will. They're basically, you know, country boys or whatever in different parts of the country. And one of the guys is in Alaska and his name's Marty. And so every season he flies his little plane because apparently, I mean, planes in Alaska are everything like they're one of your modes of transportation if you have to get somewhere. So every season he has to fly his plane up to this remote cabin that he built and he has to hit it just right so that he can hunt and bring back food for his family. And so I remember this one episode, it, I don't know how cold, but it's super cold, right? And it's wintertime and all of a sudden his snowmobile quits and this snowmobile, he actually took it completely apart, flew all the pieces up because it's too heavy to just put in the plane. It's a little one person plane and then he has to reassemble it. So he knows it inside and out. So it, it quits on him, and then all of a sudden he's in a survival situation. And he takes off his gloves, and it's like seconds. He's trying to work on screws. He doesn't have any dexterity with these big, thick gloves on. And then he's like goes from riding a snowmobile, checking his traps, to a survival situation just because one part of his snowmobile malfunctions. And he's yeah. like takes off his gloves. He's like, I, I, <laughs> he only has so long to screw the screw, and he's like, I can't feel my fingers anymore. Did yep. you ever get in any situations kind of similar to this where you're like, man, this is scary situation? Uh, I think I'm just trying to rack my brain. Um, I was, I always, I was always okay. Yeah. 
I never, I never, I mean, there were a lot of like very uncomfortable moments. Mm. So for example, like every morning, not like, I'm being hyperbolic. Um, so for the first 38 days, my feet were dry because the snow wasn't melting and it was cold and my boots were able to stay dry. Starting on day 38, the snow conditions changed and the creek started uh, like started like opening up and like I was losing my ice bridge, ice, my ice bridges and my feet were wet starting like day 38 all the way through day 174, I think it was all except oh, wow. for like two or three days. And, but what was in the springtime, what was happening is that my feet would, um, they get wet during the day and then they'd, then my boots would freeze overnight. Cause it was still dropping down to, you know, like zero, 10 degrees at night. So like, so every morning I would have to like jam my, my warm feet into these cold frozen boots. Oh, <laughs> and then, uh, and, and I had learned like that night you, when you get into camp and take your boots off, like peel them wide open, like pull the tongue out, like loosen up the laces because then at least you can get your boot, your foot inside the boot. Mm. And then, um, you know, and tighten them up. Then like you put, you jam them in there and your feet immediately get, get cold and you tighten them up as best you can with the frozen laces and you just try to get moving and get warm back up. Cause that's the only thing that's going to save you. Yeah, so some really uncomfortable, like regularly uncomfortable moments, but never a time when I was like, oh, I, let, I might lose a finger. Yeah, nothing like that. <laughs> I've been there sticking my foot in those frozen shoes. Yeah. That polar vortex come down uh, uh-huh. three years ago. And my wife and another couple were supposed to go on this trip with me. And I was like, guys, the it's going to be like 12 degrees out. And in Kentucky, you know, like 32 is pretty cold. Yeah. So right. I was like, I'm, I'm still going to go though, but I don't think it's safe for you all to go. And they're like, well, go ahead. So me and another buddy went and then sure enough, everything was iced over. Like the next morning I just threw my pants. Like I slept in my, my base layers, threw my pants just at the bottom of the tent inside, picked them up the next morning. They were just like frozen solid. My camp clothes. Yeah. But I yeah. was wondering, you, you said that you're laying on a foam pad at some point. Did you actually stay warm on that? Yeah. So like the foam pad that I used. So what, you know, we have these R ratings nowadays for sleeping pads right. and they don't accurately capture the temperature, the, um, the thermal resistance of a foam pad. It, it, they really should, foam pads should really have their own like measuring scale because um, like, if you look at the R ratings of the foam pads, you're like, Oh man, that looks frigid. But I mean, I slept on, you know, like regularly nights of like, you know, 10 below occasionally 20 blow on a foam pad on top of snow and was fine. Um, that's a, like the three quarter inch, the um, it's thermarest. I think they used to call it the so light. Um, I'm not sure if, yeah. I, don't know what, I don't know what it is nowadays if they rebranded it. So, um, and that was enough. Uh, um, you know, I also could get by too with a, um, I think a Neo air is actually just warm enough for winter time. Like I'd say like, spring winter conditions so like maybe what you didn't like so for you guys like all winter long you could use a neo air i think for like me in colorado i could use a neo air um maybe starting in like march um and in alaska similar similar story yeah wow now you had mentioned earlier we were talking about you being out there backpacking and you talked about what we didn't have the the smartphones and all that were you use what were you you doing the compass and map thing back then 
Yeah, that imagine that. Imagine like, that. Yeah, I'm just like, <laughs> wow. You say that nowadays, and people are like, what are you talking about? So, my question is, when did you learn that? Because obviously, when you were on the Appalachian Trail, you probably didn't have that. Um, no, on the Appalachian Trail, I mean, you, you know, you don't need to know navigation when you're on the Appalachian Trail. You follow white blazes, and like I said before, you get to a junction, and left is west, and right is east, you know, more or less. Right. And, um, so I learned, let's see, when did I learn to navigate? Um, I started to learn to navigate my first summer here in Colorado, which would have been 2000 and, um, 2003. Here's another, here's an, a song going to sound really old here. So I was interning for Go Light that summer. So you guys were like, Go Light, go what? Yeah, I, mean, I know what Go Light is. No, yeah, I don't know, I know what, what it is. Tell me. So you don't know what Go Light is, really? No. Go Light. Are you wow? Okay, boy, Golight is the original lightweight backpacking company. This is its commercialized version of Ray Jardine's designs. Okay, so it started with um, this, the first year they came out, it was like 10, 10 or 11 products, and uh, they were all based on Ray, Ray Jardine's designs. So it was like the um, uh, the breeze pack and the uh, the what was the shelter called? It was a, it was a tarp. It was like this really crazy tarp that you needed like an engineering degree to pitch. Um, <laughs> can't remember what it was called now. Um, so I uh, so I was interning for Golight, and I was every single weekend I would go up into the Indian Peaks and just just you know just hike all over and that was i kind of learned through the school of hard knocks how to navigate um i was pretty bad at it to start and then over time i just kind of got better and you kind of like i was always in situations where i like it was sort of sink or swim so i remember uh, on 2000 and see this would have been 2006 i did the did the Cal, did the california section of the pacific crest trail and uh that it had been a really heavy winter. I was going through at the end of June, um, beginning of July, and there weren't. It wasn't like now where there's just sort of this trough as soon as the through hikers go through. So um, there are very few tracks to go off of, and I was having to navigate like when, with the ice here, totally covered in snow. And, wow. um And you needed to kind of figure it out because, like, like what else were you going to do? So. I know now you just point your phone and turn it and you're like, oh, uh, yeah, cool. I mean, like, I can't even tell you how, how lucky you have it right now, because like, as I think about this, <laughs> so, you know, we were using, we were using the, the Pacific Crest Trail, the official Pacific Crest Trail guidebook. It was a Mountaineers Press product and it would have, it would have like, like the book was, let me grab a book here. This is like perfect. So the book was like about this big and you'd open it up and there would be like a sliver of a map, like th like right along the column like this. And so you had like, you were almost seeing nothing. Like there was no, you had like a half mile of topographic information and that was it. And, and that's what we were navigating with. It was okay. crazy. Like that's insane. I mean, I'm, it's I'm ironic actually... that people have been dying in recent years and no one died back then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got a buddy who's a, who's a former Marine and uh, this, this summer he's teaching me how to, how to navigate using a compass and a map uh, just because uh, I, I think it's, it's a good skill first of all to know uh, because electronics can fail, but uh, I can't imagine you doing all that stuff in Alaska and, and all the places you were at with absolutely no GPS whatsoever. Um, but that's impressive. 
That that yeah, alone is impressive. It's it's not that. I mean, navig- l- l- learning to read a map is not that hard. I mean, it. This is like I mean, we. Te- I teach this all summer long to, to people who have had no prior experience. Um, it's really not that hard. Um, you could do it if you figure if you wanted to. The key thing is just that you have to apply it. So, like like the way that we like. In a, in a trip setting, I mean, we will, like the first day, we'll do a, like a map reading tutorial. And at that point, the, our, our, our thought is like, okay, well, we've taught you how to read a map. So we've taught you how, like, about contour lines and scale and shading and, um, and you know, it's like what different features look like. So now it's up to you to be like constantly looking around and like figuring out where we are. And it takes a couple of days, but you know, if the clients sort of um, are on it, if they're pretty diligent about like looking around often and like kind of sort of doing that terrain association of like figuring out, um, like if they're hiking up a steep trail, they look at their map and they're like, okay, so this is what a trail going up those contour lines kind of like, that's what it looks like in the field. If they're doing that regularly, they get the hang of it after a couple of days. Yeah. 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 You got somebody who just said, I learned it yeah. from your There you go. Right. right. There you go. It's George. I think if I remember right, George, George, I think he was on an Olympics trip 2014, maybe. Wow. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll chime in and, and confirm for me. Let's see your situation. Like the technology existed, but I assume it was so expensive and not like readily available. You're kind of forced into, hey, if I don't learn, if I don't learn this skill, I can die out there. You know, so you just practice it. Yeah, I, I would actually go. I actually do, my decision to navigate still based on map and compass. Is, it's actually not a um, a cost issue. It's more. I just think it's a better. I think it's a better system. So, um, like with it. So the with it, with a paper map. So like you know, I've got this big like this big piece of topographic information, and I can see all sorts of things. In comparison, when you're on your smartphone screen. It's much smaller and it's just like the pinching and zooming. What I see is that what I see is the people who are like just in this little window, they get lost about where they are in the big picture of things. Mm. Um, and um, so I, I prefer map and compass like paper map and compass um, because it's a, it's a better, it's a more, I think it's a better sort of viewing experience. It doesn't need any batteries. Um, it doesn't, if I drop it, I, it doesn't, uh, there are no issues with like reflectivity of like sunlight or polarized sunglasses or I just think it's a better experience. I will say that there's like, they're not, um, they're complementary to each other. So I think you can, depending on, depending on your understanding of the local terrain, I think um, I could see the case being made for both a um, map, paper maps being your primary source or smartphone being your primary source. So as an example, um, so like Alan Dixon is one of my other guides and he, like when we go to an area that he knows really well, he's just using his phone because he understands like the macro topography. Mm-hmm. So he's, um, he's not lost in that, in that screen, if you will. So he's just like occasionally getting on there, taking a quick look, seeing exactly where he is and he's done. Whereas people who don't have, like, don't understand the macro topography as well. They don't understand the. You know, where the drainages are and where the high peaks are, like they need that paper map to just sort of give them a constant reference about where they are in the scheme of things. I love that you use the terminology there, the macro, 
because that transcends so many things, like not just looking at a map and backpacking. Like myself personally, I'm a high school math teacher. And basically all these kids see is this one little piece, like you're teaching them this. And they get lost because they don't understand the whole big picture. Yeah. And that applies to so many things. You really got a gift of words, man. Yeah. Kinda, I think it's pretty easy to get bogged down in the weeds and a lot of things and not kind of see that thing. I think you're, yeah, spot, you're spot on with the, make, making that analogy. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about um, the AT. So first, was that your like first experience with long distance backpacking for an extended amount of time? Or did you do? Yes. Okay. So to follow up from that, at what point did some of those things start clicking with you on like, you know, you mentioned nobody taught you how to filter water or there's things that you had to figure out. At what point did the gear choices start clicking with you, how to do this and that, just the everyday things on trail? Yeah. Yeah. So what's, I'd say like right away, um, like my, my, I kept a diary back then. Uh, I still have it. It's downstairs. Um, the very first diary entry has a list of, uh, this is family friendly, right? A list of of things that I need to, uh, that I need to throw out or send home the next time I'm in town. So I like very quickly realized that like I am carrying too much stuff and I'm not going to use like a lot of this. Um, But a lot of it was like a lot of it, a lot of the things that would, I would pick up on would be um, I'd see other, someone else doing something. And I'd be like, oh, that's that's interesting. Or I'd see like a somewhat like a piece of gear that someone had. I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. So a couple of examples. I remember we we're at. I was hiking with a couple other guys, and we we're at the base of this big climb in Georgia. And like this, like I remember it being like it felt like we were climbing up like Mount Everest. It was so steep, and uh, it's, it was. Um, and this guy, so we're sitting down at the bottom of this thing at like a shelter or a creek or something. And he filled up with water um, and he drank a liter while he was sitting there. And I'm like, why are you, why are you chugging water? He's like, well, like, you know, if I drink it right here, I don't have to carry it up the hill. I'm like, well, that's actually like really smart. Cause here I was with two, liters, you know, carrying like two or three liters of water up this stupid hill. And he, put a, you know, put a leader into his belly right at the bottom, let it start doing work for him. It's like, okay, that's, that's interesting. Like, that's a good, that's a good little tip there. Um, another time I remember hiking, um, I remember hiking the, like the first couple of days and I'm just, I remember seeing like, it looked like someone had gone through with like a, like an aerator on the side of the trail. And like, they're all, there's all these little like divots along the side of the trail. I'm like, what, what, what is, what is causing this? And then I met some other hikers with trekking poles. And I was like, oh, <laughs> trekking poles, of course. And like, I actually, I was in so, I was like struggling so much that I contemplated, um, like there was this group of people and they had like left their backpacks and their trekking poles on the trail and like went to go, like went off the trail for some reason. And I contemplated, contemplated leaving one of the people, all of the cash that I had and taking their tracking poles. <laughs> cause I, cause I realized how valuable they would be. Yeah. yeah. The, my, my first trip, I didn't bring tracking poles. And then there's a couple of people that did, or like one guy brought a broken fishing pole and he's like, I'm just going to turn this upside down and use it as a walking pole. And the, I learned really quick. I was like, I got to cut me a stick or something. Yeah. This is hard. Yeah. 
Well, yeah. speaking of trekking poles, is it true that you scare away large animals with trekking poles? Not, I don't do it on like regularly. It's it's just <laughs> one one time in particular that's famous. <laughs> I'm curious. Can you so, tell us about it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I was in Alaska. Um, all things happen in Alaska, right? So I was in the Brooks Range, which is like northern Alaska. I was in the middle of a 24-day stretch without crossing a road or seeing another human being. And it was it was technically night. I remember it being like 10 or 11 o'clock at night, but I was still hiking because it's 24 hours of daylight. And I had this like moment where I was like, oh, you should like, you know, this would be a good time to like see if there are any animals grazing up on the hills. So mm. I kind of looked left and like, you know, looked up. And as I started to turn around, this I heard all this commotion come out of the, like coming out of the brush. And this and this grizzly bear um, came out of the willows in the small clearing where I was. And I knew what it was. It was charging through the willows. I could, I'm like, there's only one thing that makes that much noise. And as it came into the clearing, it kind of took, I remember taking this kind of this, a right, a right step. And I was like, oh, thank God. Because that's, like, he wasn't continuing straight towards me. <laughs> and of course, I'm like yelling at him. I got my bear spray out. So this bear is like, okay, peace. I'm out of here. And he like runs away. And then like half hour, 45 minutes later, I had that same feeling of like, hey, you should like look around for a minute. And I did the same thing. I, I looked left and looked right around my right shoulder. And there's this grizzly bear charging at me, like just like bolting at me, running across the gravel braids, like this gravel braids in the river, just running right at me. And by the time I saw it, it was close enough that I didn't really have any time to like react to it. So I just, um, I knew I needed to get to my bear spray. But my, I was carrying my trekking poles in my hands, like that were going to interfere with me getting my bear spray. So I just took my trekking pole and threw the trekking pole at the bear. And this trekking pole landed right in front of the bear, like dagger side down. <laughs> and I was yelling at the bear. And this bear is like, I don't know what the hell you are, but a caribou has never thrown anything at me before. And it took a, took a right-hand turn and started running away from me as fast as it possibly could. And as it ran away, it left behind like this three-foot-long streak of red berries. It was just like a hose wow. of red berries that came out of it. And so <laughs> and then there's this great video. It's online if anyone wants to see it. It's like it's like I look like a madman. Yeah. <laughs> how many how many times do you think you've told that story? Well, you know, it's in so I've I don't know how many times I've done my Alaska like a slideshow about my Alaska trip, probably you know, hundred plus and it's on it's in that slideshow. So yeah, I've seen that video more than yeah, a lot. Kind of, has, kind of, even for me, has lost its novelty a little bit. So pretty soon, I don't know if you know her, but um, we're having Heather Onish Anderson on, yeah. and um, she, I, I read her book, you know, in, in anticipation of talking to her, and she talks about her animal encounters, and she literally gets to the point where <laughs> she's like, I don't care about this mountain lion. Like I'm ready to fight it off. Nothing's going to stop me from my goal. Did you ever run into any moments where you really had to like face those demons inside? And you're like, cause you said, I don't like to quit, but you get to the point where you're like, and I think I'm going to break. Yeah. I mean, there are always those moments in a long trail. Um, I never, there was, it was never an animal that sort of like got between me and my goal. It was always the conditions of just 
like, boy, this is hard and it's been hard and maybe it's not that fun right now. And I, but I've done this, I've done enough of these trips to know that um, it can't always get worse. <laughs> so <laughs> at some point the, the tides will turn. Um, at least that's been my experience. And then I think too, there's a point where, um, where you've, you've compromised, sacrificed enough that it's much easier to endure. I think that the, I think the hardest part of a long distance trip is at the beginning where you don't have any skin in the game. All that you've done is spent money and like, but you haven't, you haven't really put in a lot of time, like a big, like physical commitment to it yet. And I think that's that's kind of the time when it's easiest to quit because you're um, you don't feel that vested yet, and it, the the goal too is also can be just really intimidating. I mean, you're talking about uh, I, I mean, not to pick on anyone in the Appalachian Trail, like the Appalachian Trail, it's it's 2,100 miles, and there are hundreds mm-hmm. of people who do it every year. But that's still like that is just an absurd distance, and the idea of walking from Georgia to Maine, it's just it's like difficult to wrap your mind around. Um, how do you you know, how can you just, it's too big to um, sort of conceptualize. It's, you got to, it's that kind of a, uh, you can't eat an elephant in one bite kind of thing. Um, and the long, like the, the longer the trips get, the more impossible they seem. I mean, can you imagine like being at the Atlantic ocean and being like, yeah, I think uh, over the next 11 months, I'm going to walk to the Pacific. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's crazy, crazy talk. Well, but, we, we actually had Rue McKinnon on here not too long ago, and he's doing the American Perimeter Trail, where he's literally uh, walking the perimeter of the United States. Uh, I think he's going to be done soon if, he, if he's not already. But, yeah, you, you talk about that, and he was kind of the same way. He's like, who gets up in the morning and says, yeah. I think I'm just going to hike like thousands of miles. Yeah, but you know, but you can do – you know, you can do a mile and you can do like, you can hike up to lunch and you can hike to dinner and like, you just stitch enough of those efforts together. And suddenly when, you know, one day you go to bed and you're like, wow, I've hiked a thousand miles. Damn. Look at me. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the bear situation, was that the most scared you've ever been on trail? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that was probably like the closest um, I can't think of another situation where it was like that touch and go. Um, there were some other, like there's some difficult conditions I've been in, like um, really cold and wet, um, uh, like really uncomfortable. Like I remember, um, but nothing where I was like, could have been dead in the next five minutes. Yeah. Um, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. I'm. You can see them like, you know, it's different now. So I, that was my Alaska trip was 10 years ago. Um, and it's just, I'm in a different phase of my life. You know, 40 years old, married, I'm home, got a small business. Like the idea of doing some of those trips, like putting myself out there to that same degree a little. It's uh, it's like, oh yeah, that's what a, that's what a young man does. It's a little more at stake yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. You're, you're talking about earlier how whenever you first, you first started, and you're immediately starting to figure out some some of the mistakes that you had made gear choice wise and that kind of thing. Can you remember any of the the items you're just had that immediate regret about? And you're like, why would I bring this? Oh sure, 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, you ready for him? Um, <laughs> yes. I brought. Um, well, so well, let me. So let me preface this. So like, so I think the best way to think about backpacking, the, the, like the best way to think about backpacking, is that you have there's this spectrum of styles. And on one hand, you have uh, the backcountry camper. So that is like, you know, you're going to go out and you're going to just hike into a close camp and you're going to like set up and you're going to have, you're going to eat really well and you're going to write in your journal and you're going to take like awesome photos with your large format camera and you're going to go fishing and, uh, you know, you're going to have big campfires, okay, whatever else. The other style is embodied by the through hike of, a, of an overnight day hiker. So they're... They're hiking all day, dawn to dusk. They're going to bed, sleeping eight hours, maybe if they're being look, being generous to themselves, and they get up and do it again. And for them, it's all about kind of time on feet, distance, etc. So, you know, for me, starting the Appalachian Trail, what I in this this spectrum, and I didn't understand that um, if I was trying to hike to to Maine, that maybe I optimize my comfort for the trail instead of thinking that. Uh, if I spent time in camp reading Ed Abbey's, you know, uh, you know, an Ed Abbey book, that somehow I was going to get bonus points for their. T- that's not the way it works, right? Right. Right. So, um, I so I had I had a copy of uh, Desert Solitaire. Uh, just this absurd amount of toiletries, like, like you know, like travel sized shampoo and conditioner, and like a loofah scrub and. <laughs> lamp but then i also had like uh, i had one of those like like expandable i know <laughs> i had uh, a two liter pot a one and a half liter pot a bowl a um i was pretty like frugal college kid so i had i had a lot of uh, white gas fuel at my, in my dorm room and I didn't want to have to buy it along the way. So I, I was carrying um, two full 20 ounce fuel bottles Start If you did the math, I think that <laughs> probably could get to West Virginia with that much fuel. <laughs> okay. Wow. So, uh, what else? thing. So in addition to all that, all that crap that I had, I didn't have anything that I actually needed. So I remember I had a wind or rain or a water resistant jacket and pants that weren't waterproof. Like they weren't like it's, they didn't have a membrane. Um, I had a, uh, I had a, a wool sweater that like I would wear to class as like my mid layer. Um, I, my sleeping bag was like a 40 degree synthetic. Um, so like froze most nights. I mean, I didn't have trekking, like I just didn't have stuff. Oh, and then I had a, um, <laughs> here's, so I got to hot springs, North Carolina. And I was like, I got to lighten up. How am I going to do this? So one obvious way to lighten up was to get a different shelter. And I was carrying a Sierra Designs clip flashlight. I can't believe I still remember all this stuff. Sierra Designs <laughs> clip flashlight tent, which is the, like, I'm like dating myself again here, but this is like the original, like, this is the first, this is the first tent that had clips for the poles rather than like sleeves. Okay. That's why it was called the clip flashlight. It was like revolutionary and, but it weighed three and a half pounds. So I was like, all right, well, how could I lighten up? And um, I figured that I could save a lot of weight by carrying a, uh, a water resistant or waterproof bivy sack, like not like a, like a outdoor research bivy sack. Mm. 
but which that thing weighed like 18 or 20 ounces. I don't remember, but it was like made completely out of Gore-Tex. And um, I use that thing all like through the rest of the trail, but I'm in like, I'm in New York in July and it's like uh, nighttime lows of like yeah. 75 or 80 degrees. And I'm stuck inside of this sweaty, stinky, clammy cocoon bivy sack. <sighs> and you can't leave it so, open because oh. of the bugs. So <laughs> there you yeah. go. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, wow. my gosh. So we got a great question for you. As our buddy Miyagi, he says, having guided many trips, what is your biggest hiking etiquette pet peeve? Ooh. What a great question. <sighs> biggest pet peeve. <laughs> I'm just trying to think. Um, There's so many. No, no. There's almost a shortage. I'm trying to think of things that I get irritated about. Um, I mean, a, I guess a couple that are specific to like to our trip. So, um I get irritated by loud canister stoves. So like we, we kind of emphasize, we emphasize, we try, we try to get clients to take alcohol fuel or alcohol stoves. Cause they're, um, it's just easier to deal with for fuel. Cause a lot of, a lot of clients are flying in and we can, we can very easily have the fuel for them at the trailhead. Um, and the alcohol stoves though, they're quiet. So you're having dinner and just, you know, you just sort of, it's these natural sounds like, you know, the wind or the water or sometimes the mosquitoes, but someone has like a, you know, sometimes someone will bring a canister stove that sounds like a jet engine and suddenly, you know, for, for the five minutes they have, it's like, <laughs> and you're screaming at the person next to you, hey, how was your day? <laughs> so that's a little bit of a pet peeve. Another pet peeve that's specific to my trip. So we, we supply all the breakfast and dinners and um, I, you, the the cooking directions more or le, more or less are heat up, boil ten ounces of water, throw everything in and eat it. Okay, but I can't tell you how many times every night I'll get the Andrew, how many ounces of water? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I try not to get too I try not to get too frustrated. It's actually usually the clients who pick up on it. They're like, "Wow, you are you are so patient because I I'm getting tired of hearing that question being asked." Uh, <laughs> That's so I, got, I got another good question on here too. Uh says uh, I'll retire from over 30 years in the military and present myself to a through hike, uh AT or CDT. Which one would you recommend? Oh, you know, it really depends on what you're looking for. Um I think both. I, boy, I'm not, I don't know if I'm the person to ask anymore. I can tell you what they, you know, my understanding of them and kind of what what they, you know, what they maybe used to be like. The AT is like it's great for first time through a hiker if you are from the East Coast, or if you've never, or if you've never spent. I, I would actually like even if you and if you're from a totally different part of the country. So I'm thinking like a sem, like a semi arid or arid part of the country because it just might be like you know living here in Colorado now. I love going back east. Cause it's just so green and there's all this water and there's like all this, like all these like plants and it's a really interesting place for me to go. Um, but if you're from the East coast, it makes sense to do because it's what you know. And um, you, if you get, if you um, do like the, excuse me, the Pacific crest or the Constellation divide trail, you're going to might struggle to go hike 2,100 miles through a green tunnel. So maybe best to kind of get it out of the way. But it makes sense. In terms of um, scenery, uh, I mean, the CDT is pretty spectacular, and I think it's unlike the PCT; it's preserved quite a 
quite a bit of its wilderness character. I don't think it's quite yet been, um, it hasn't been gut hooked yet, if you will. How is it not to the same I degree? That. I get that. I, I was just thinking about gut hooks earlier when you're talking about the lack of technology and how you're using the maps. Like I did yeah. the long trail and gut hooks was everything, you know, had all the water sources, shelters, pictures attached, yeah. like stay here. It's crazy how, I mean, I remember when that app came out and I remember thinking like, oh, well, that's, that sounds like a, a hobby project. <laughs> 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 that sounds like someone who's a little overzealous about the future of apps. Yeah, he clearly saw it and I just, it was just, it was, I'm a Jurassic. Yeah. That's, okay. That's all good. Another question for you. Uh, what are your thoughts on X-Pack versus DCF for backpack material? Um, yeah, so let me think. Um, so I guess the point, you what you need to know is that both materials are excellent and you probably can't go wrong either way. Um, I think if you start digging into the details of them, and let me, let me be more specific on that. Unless you are like going to be dragging this pack like up like sandstone slabs or you're going to be doing canyoneering or you're going to be doing like some high altitude mountaineering and you're like constantly packing skis or crampons. I don't think it's going to matter. Like both of these packs, both of those materials are going to withstand at least one through hike, probably multiple through hikes. Um, and, and, you know, to put it in perspective, like the, um, the, uh, um, what's the, what's the grid that the Dyneema, fabric like with the white grid stop I mean, that's what i used for like my i used a go light go light jam on my great western loop and used it almost from start to finish and actually maybe i did use it from start to finish um and that was seven months long and that pack like withstood every seam was intact like I, it never it never tore or anything and that's by today's standards that's kind of a like a very mediocre pack fabric so either pack fabric will be fine um i think when you start digging down the details i i don't really i'm not i don't really understand the dcf for pack fabrics um as for a for shelter fabrics you know denim composite fabric is amazing it's it's uh, half the it's half the weight, more waterproof, um, uh, and and stronger than any coated nylon. And that's just like ridiculous. Um, for pack fabric, I think it loses some of its some of those superlatives because it's not. I guess the only real selling point is that it's waterproof. So you could like if if the pack is designed right, you could tape the seams. It's like so it's pretty. The pack could be pretty darn waterproof, but. I don't know. I think a I think a pack liner at two and a half ounces works pretty well too. So, yeah. I I got the simple answer for that question. Just get one of each, man. Yeah. Maybe the other spend six hundred bucks on two packs. <laughs> Maybe so, the other answer there too is that yeah. is that uh, probably the feature the the fit and the features in the pack probably make a much bigger difference at that point than the pack fabric. Right. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about what you do now, because you said some of that stuff was a young man's game that you've done in the past, yeah. you know? So what is yeah. it that you do full-time now? Uh, f it's not quite full-time because um, I still okay. have my hands on a few other things. But uh, so I, the biggest part of what I do is I'm, I'm guiding backpacking trips or I'm running a guiding company at this point. So it's, um, this year we're looking, we're guiding, we're running 44 trips with, 368 clients um wow. i've got 
15 or 16 guys working for me. So it's a pretty big operation at this point. And what's um, the name of that company? Yeah. Uh, what, it's Andrew Skirka it? Adventures. <laughs> yeah. I like it. I mean, it's like, You're yeah, like- I don't. So it's fun. I, you know, when I started this, I never, like, I had to apply for like a commercial permit. And they're like, all right, well, you need a company name. I'm like, company name. I'm like, well, it's just, it's just me. So just <laughs> like, all right, Andrew Skirka Adventures. So it sounds like a law firm, but I was about, I mean, there's, I was no, there's no, there's no branding time. of it. Yeah, there's no there's no branding. It's not like um, you know, Southern Yosemite Mountain Guides or Alpine Guides or uh, you know, like just there's not there's nothing or you know, Outward Bound or I mean, there's just it's like I'm 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 still deeply embedded in this in this brand and this program. Well, I was I was about to say, man, you're awful stuck on yourself. Just got to get your name out there on everything, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It's on brand, man. No, that's great, man. Yeah. So uh we're 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 coming up on an hour right now. And uh what I want to do is I want to give you the opportunity just tell people everywhere they can find you as far as like your your tours and and everything that you're doing, just so people can find you and find more information about what you're doing and uh connect with you. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So um uh, I'm pretty easy to search because my last name is pretty unique. So the last name is Skurka, S-K-U-R-K-A. And uh, I've got a website on, Insta- on Instagram. Um, try not to, I'm contemplating that. Um, Facebook, a little less active. And uh, not not too much much on, you- on YouTube. You guys are dominating the space. I don't think I com- could compete. So <laughs> I think I'll just stick to my blog and stick to running trips. Very cool, man. Well, uh, Jeremiah, you got any more questions for Andrew before we uh, sign off of here? No, I just I want to make sure that anybody that uh, wants to get in contact with you to to arrange or or work with you, you know, be one of your clients. Make sure that they can easily find that. I think um, we said the website is just your name dot com, right? Andrew Skirka dot com. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, oh, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much it's for gracing with you, your presence. You guys are you guys are who really enjoyed this. Yeah, yeah. Thank we, you. We'll, we try to have a good time when we can. So thank you so much. Uh, if you want to hang out in the green room, we'll be with you in just a second. But we're okay. gonna go ahead and good deal. Yes, yeah. I'll see you over there. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot, man. That was great, man. These don't he, get boring at all, do they? No, dude. He is next level. Like, I, I mean, I could talk to him all night. Oh, I know. I know. I just, I still can't get over just, uh, just the amount of miles this man has done. Blows my mind. Like (laughs) when I first started researching him and I was seeing like all the trips that he's done, I was like, how, how in the world, you know, I'm not going to walk that far in my entire life. If you counted every single step (laughs) here on out. Oh, yeah. Well, hey, folks, real quick, just to remind everybody, in June, we are going to be moving this live stream solely over to the Backpacking Podcast YouTube channel. So make sure you guys get subscribed to that as soon as you can, because we want to get this off of being on two separate YouTube channels and get it to one central place where you can all tune in and and see these. This will be posted in audio form if you got in here late and you didn't get to see the whole thing and you want to listen to it while you're driving to work mm-hmm. uh that'll be out probably either this week or next week be the 17th so. it'll be published february 17th and um if if everybody wants to join us next week for a live stream uh i don't think that we've said yet but our guests are uh, the strawbridge family so 
Yes, an they, entire family of through hawkers. And they are fin- they're getting ready to start the Appalachian Trail, and it is their last of the Triple Crown. They've already done, as a family, the PCT and the CDT. And when I mean a family, there's like six or seven of them. And <laughs> yeah. like they, it's just an awesome story. And so make sure you tune in next week so you guys can meet with them and see them. Uh, and also, this week, we are recording a podcast with uh, I think you talked about it earlier with Heather yeah. Onish Anderson, and we're really excited about getting to talk to her. And that that's an audio only podcast, so that's going to be out. Uh, I guess it'll be next week when that one comes out. Yeah, that'd be the twenty fourth is when we're going to publish that. So stay tuned. Big big things coming. We're having a blast with this stuff. So thanks so much, guys, for tuning in, and uh, we will catch you on the next one. Adios. 